Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I am an associate professor at Washington Elite School of Law, where I focus on all things business law. I'm very excited about today's episode. Uh, the topic is that's not the First Amendment. And I have my very dear friend Shakira Sanders on to talk to us about all things First Amendment. Shakira, why don't you kick us off by introducing yourself? Hi, thank you, Carlos, for having me on today. My name is Shakira Sanders. I am a professor of law at the University of Idaho College of Law, where I teach constitutional law, criminal procedure, and the First Amendment. I've been very fortunate this past semester to be visiting in New York City at Brooklyn Law School, where I'm teaching the same subjects. Awesome. Well, I mean, it's always good to get to have some time in New York. So I'm a little jealous, um, you know, especially if somebody else can foot the bill in New York, <laughs> right? That's always the good stuff. All right. So I call this episode, That's Not the First Amendment, not because the First Amendment doesn't provide free speech and not because a lot of the things that people say is First Amendment isn't protected by the First Amendment, but because it's often more complicated than that. It's not just the First Amendment, which probably would have been a better title, but I feel like people wouldn't get the nuance. So to get us started, and so, you know, it's called Getting Common, so let's break it down. Like, what is the First Amendment and what does it protect? So the First Amendment as a whole contains a number of rights. Uh, the religious clauses, which includes the right of freedom of belief and the right of free exercise of religion, there is the free association clause uh, that protects your ability uh, to have group relationships, whether those are intimate family relationships or uh, uh, other professional type of relationships um, with other people that you have in common. It doesn't have to necessarily be uh, professional. Then we have the Petitions Clause, which gives you a right to assemble and petition your government for redress of grievances. And then there's the huge topic of the First Amendment or free expression, which includes free speech and freedom of press. All right. So, you know, I never thought like I forget that free association is in the First Amendment. So I'm going to go off a little bit <laughs> off task. You know, I often you know, when you have gender only groups or race only groups, how does the First Amendment impact those? Are we are we still allowed to have those? Are we still allowed to have sororities and fraternities? Do they violate something else? Or is the First Amendment allowing us to like have gender only race only groups still? Well, one thing you should understand is that the First Amendment, like most of the Bill of Rights, only applies against the government. And so in terms of individual association, you can have what groups you want. Now, there becomes an issue, however, when you're seeking government sponsorship of your association um, and you seek to exclude. For the government, that can also create equal protection, due process, and a whole other 
uh, uh, sort of uh, assembly of rights can come into play. But in terms of you and your friends, right, you don't really have to worry about the First Amendment because you're not uh, assuming you're not a government entity or you're not working on behalf of a government entity. And that's a great segue uh, to my next question. Like, who does the First Amendment apply to? When you say government, is it just federal government? Is it federal and state? What about like my city and my county? So uh, originally, as interpreted, none of the Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment, applied against state governments, local governments. They were intended by our framers as part of the big compromise towards getting the first seven articles of the uh, Constitution approved. There was this side deal that uh, there would be these Bill of Rights uh, to protect individual rights from the federal government, but also to protect states from the federal government. After the Civil War, when we got a 14th Amendment due process clause, which applied directly to state governments, is when you saw that over 100-year conversation about which of the Bill of Rights actually apply against state governments. Side note, we're still having that conversation. There still are at least three Bill of Rights uh, that are not uh, uh, guaranteed against states, but the rest of them have been over the course of the early 1900s. The First Amendment incidentally being the first of those rights that were applied against state government. So, so you mentioned the compromise and you, you got historical, you know, let, let's talk about the role of the First Amendment in the nation's founding. Um, and, and, and we could kind of segue into our friend Plessy. Yes, yes. So, you know, it's really interesting the way in which speech really played a role. Uh, all of the rights that were not yet uh, in a First Amendment, because there was no First Amendment at the time of the Revo American Revolution, uh, but the right to speak out against your government was a huge motivator uh, for those who sought uh, to break away from Great Britain, which at the time uh, was ruled more uh, like a with the king, right? Um, and here we said, well, hey, you can't really question a king. Their sovereignty is absolute. We want more of a limited government. So you saw people taken to the streets, protesting, dumping tea in the harbor. Um, and so that ability to speak out against your government was a huge motivating factor, as well as the idea that people wanted religious freedom. Many governments in Europe at the time uh, were closely connected with churches and other religious organizations as part of their government, uh, which is part of the Western legal tradition in Europe. Here in the United States, we wanted a government that was separate from religious organizations, which is why we see the establishment and free exercise clauses in our First Amendment. But one thing I also point out to people that you don't see a whole lot of uh, in terms of the founding of the country is this huge ability to declare some people to be enslaved and some people uh, to be free. Um, and that was a huge uh, uh, part of the uh, debates at the time of the founding of the U.S. Uh, government. If you really look at the Constitution, it doesn't guarantee a right of slavery, and it certainly doesn't guarantee that they have to be African-American. So the ability of individuals to declare someone a slave and to have their government back that up was a huge part of how the First Amendment shaped the founding of this nation. So can you explain a little bit about how that is speech? 
Um, cause you know, I've, I've heard you do it in presentations and, and like, it, to me, it's always fascinating because to me, it influences the struggles for racial justice that we have today. And I don't think we think about the speech aspects of calling someone black or non-black or declaring someone of a certain race. Well, this was one of the interesting things about the Plessy versus Ferguson case, right? Uh, which was a case that was decided one of the first cases to interpret the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Prior to uh, the Civil War, there was no guarantee of equal protection, even though the Declaration of Independence declared all men to be equal. So post-Civil War, we have a 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. Nobody really knows what that means, but we know that these clauses apply directly to state governments. Uh, in addition to equal protection, we had due process. So you have Mr. Mr. Plessy who's seeking to ride a train in Louisiana. He says that he is Caucasian. The train conductor says that he is black and therefore he has to sit in a different part of the train. The US Supreme Court upholds that, not really as an issue of speech, but as an issue of race. Um, and so we can begin to see uh, uh, with that case, as we saw in the Dred Scott opinion, right, uh, that was uh, 30 years earlier, prior to the Civil War, where Mr. Scott says, I am a free man. Uh, his owner says, no, you are not. And the U.S. Supreme Court agrees with the owner. So this ability for speech to be uh, uh, unrecognized, depending on the speaker, is a large part of the U.S. constitutional history on freedom of speech. Citizenship guarantees you certain rights in this country. But to make clear, you don't have to be a citizen to have the right of free speech. Of course, we saw that Mr. Uh, with Mr. Dred Scott, that was not necessarily true nor did it, did it turn out to be true for Mr. Plessy. Big lesson there. While there's a right to redress your government uh, under the First Amendment, there is no right uh, for the government to hear your grievances. Um, and so the ability of the government to sort of pick and choose who, to whom it listens um, and whose right it, rights it enforces based on that speech uh, is, is something that I think we still see today. So, you know, I didn't think about this in the plan, but I'd love because we, we're talking about, you know, citizenship versus personhood, you know, who is a person who the government listens to versus who they don't. And I know with your ag gag work, you ventured into the corporate personhood, corporate speech arena. Um, so many folks think corporate personhood is new, that it starts with Citizens United. And so many think corporate speech is new and then it starts with Citizens United. Talk to us a little bit about the history of corporate personhood and corporate speech. Like, how long have corporations had First Amendment rights? I think since there have been corporations who have spoken about particular issues. Uh, if you look at the, the dominant business model uh, prior to the Civil War, it wasn't necessarily that people gravitated towards the corporate form. A lot of early corporate law was about you had to get approval from the government. And most of your goals had to be more charitable, not necessarily uh, business related or profit driven. I think because of the economic devastation caused by the Civil War, we began to see the corporate forum look a lot more attractive. Think about it. A lot of slave owners ran businesses. And when they could not ran, run that slave business anymore, uh, they had personal liability plus business liability. 
Uh, with the corporate form, you have the opportunity uh, to cut off your personal liability. Um, and I think that that became a way more attractive option. Uh, what's interesting is that we see many of the early cases on due process extending to companies right after the Civil War. With that comes the right of speech. Uh, but because speech law was so limited at that time, I don't think many people saw it as a speech issue. And the same way we don't see Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson as speech issues. Uh, but much of that early ability to use the corporate vehicle, uh, I think, is to separate yourself personally from the business such that what the business does, what it says, what it's about is really limited to that business. We see a lot of strains of that still today, the ways in which private employment is a dominant model, but those private employers don't have to worry about the constitution necessarily or at all in many cases. Um, and because of that, you still see a lot of private discrimination in the workforce. Uh, we still have state and federal laws surrounding discrimination, uh, but it can be a very fine line uh, between uh, what is actionable discrimination and what is not. And of course, it comes down to a jury. Uh, and so if you're in a community uh, where uh, uh, your jury pool may not be as sensitive to uh, uh, discrimination in the workplace, then that makes it very difficult uh, for individuals uh, to get any relief as well. So here again, the First Amendment sort of plays this huge role, this ability to speak out um, um, and not have your government punish you for that speech. Um, but of course, the First Amendment is not absolute. Um, and so we see a lot of uh, uh, different ways in which the U.S. Supreme Court has categorize speech into areas of less protection versus full protection. You know, I, I love your tracing, uh, you know, from, from slavery to corporate, um, especially since, you know, much of, you know, I've done in my work, you know, tracing how some of the business principles that were established in slavery, the accounting principles, the structural principles, the, the workplace principles, translated from slavery, from the institution of slavery into corporations. And we see the same thing with, you know, the way that employers are treated and we see employees are treated. Um, and we see the same thing with the, the classification of rights. Um, and so it all kind of weaves together and, and people kind of didn't pay attention. I also think what I always find fascinating about the First Amendment, um, as someone who does business law and thinks private ordering is more important than the Constitution, always, the reason my private ordering is so important is the First Amendment. I have the right to engage in private ordering because the First Amendment exists, right? And so when people were so shocked at Citizens United saying money is speech, spending money is speech, you know, contracting is speech, right? And we've talked about, you know, working on papers about that, right? Everything that we do is a form of expression that the government can't impose on. Um, and we just don't think about it in that way because it's so foundational to being American. You know, it's like, being capitalist is foundational to being American. Having the right to engage in free contracting is being American. And free speech is just American. It's just what we're used to. And we kind of take it for granted and don't realize it's that pervasive force. 
Well, I think what we also have to understand that uh, we also are used to is the ordering of whose speech uh, is more prominent and more important. Um, And the role that wealth plays in that uh, has always been a part of it. Uh, What's interesting about Citizens United is the the conversation about money equating to speech was not something that that case declared. Uh, That was declared in the mid-1970s in a case called Buckley versus Vallejo. Uh, which was a a review of one of the first uh, uh, campaign finance laws. Uh, In the wake of President Nixon's uh, presidency um, and his resignation, uh, I think a lot of people woke up to the issue of campaign finance reform. You had some early uh, attempts at it, uh, and Buckley versus Vallejo was one of the first cases to deal with it. And there the court made clear uh, that money equates to speech in the context of of political speech. Um, And so that principle has been driving us well before Citizens United. Buckley versus Vallejo is also the case that set the distinction between campaign, uh, uh, donations to a campaign and donations for expenditures. Uh, Now, part of what we saw post-Citizen United is a little little blurring of those lines. But again, the principles had well been set uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, But to get to your point as well, and the ways in which American society drives change in corporation, right, is through the First Amendment, uh, through social movement, through awareness movements. Uh, We drive criminal law that way. Think about Mothers Against Drunk Driving and uh, and organizations like that. Uh, I teach criminal procedure. You can still see the influence on the U.S. Supreme Court uh, with some of these social movements. So it's, uh, and of course, internationally, what we're seeing today in the wake of the war in Ukraine, right? People protesting all around the nation um, in support of Ukraine. So freedom of speech is just such a powerful, powerful tool uh, in the ways in which we allow it, but the ways in which we can suppress it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I, I just, you know, I always feel like as Americans, you know, we are quick to say that's infringing on my first amendment rights without realizing how fortunate we are to truly have full first amendment freedom of speech. You know, we don't actually know what it's like to have true infringement on freedom of speech. What we're claiming as infringement probably is not. Um, when we think about people who are silenced all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think even here we have to think about uh, some ways in which people are silenced that we may not even recognize, right? Um, and so it's it's a really uh, fine line. Uh, a lot of times when uh, we hear people claiming First Amendment, they're usually sort of going after a private individual or a private institution against whom the First Amendment doesn't apply. Uh, and so again, uh, the First Amendment is not absolute. The right to speak is not absolute even against the government, right? We have federal discrimination law that applies in our workplaces, that applies in our schools uh, to protect the learning and work environment, recognizing historical discrimination. Uh, So we have a lot of ways in which we formalize the suppressing of some speech. Uh, But uh, I think it can be hard as Americans to understand all of those distinctions. You know, that's a great segue to my next topic, which, you know, I'd like to take some of the popular scenarios that are out in pop culture in the press and kind of discuss 
the nuances of First Amendment protection. So let's start with freedom of the press. Does freedom of the press mean that they can publish anything they want, whether it's true, whether it's false? No, you have a number of state laws uh, that uh, 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 the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld in terms of the way in which uh, uh, they protect individuals and their reputations. You've got defamation law that applies. You've got privacy law that applies. You've got laws about proprietary uh, information uh, that can apply. Um, So there are still a ton of common law uh, that protects your rights, uh, your right to your reputation, the right to your good name, which is why we see often with the press uh, this desire to sort of fact check, double check, triple check, and get some cooperation uh, on stories before they go to print. And we certainly see uh, the news media Uh, uh, facing lawsuits uh, surrounding the way in which they uh, report. The Hulk Hogan case against uh, Gawker, right? That was about his privacy. Um, And there is a fine line between reporting someone having a a, a scandalous sexual relationship and actually showing that person having sex, right? Um, And that was the line in that case. That was way too private to actually release the sex tape without consent. recently saw with Sarah Palin suing New York Times, actually going to trial. There, uh, we have a doctrine called New York Times versus Sullivan, which imposes an actual malice standard if you're a public official or if you're a public figure. Uh, So there, we have the judge issuing a ruling uh, that it is very likely that her case fails despite what the jury said. But then we have the jury agreeing with the judge as well. Some appeals issues uh, have now arisen arisen with regards to uh, the timing of the judge issuing the ruling uh, that he doesn't believe her claims meet that high actual malice standard. Uh, So freedom of press is not absolute, nor is just like your freedom of speech. Amongst your First Amendment rights that are absolute, really the only one is the right of belief uh, uh, protected under the Establishment Clause. Now, you know, with the proliferation of social media and bloggers, who is considered press? You know, is is anybody posting on the internet with like a very, like, am I the press with a podcast? Like, who counts as press? We all enjoy the right to free press. You don't need a journalism degree. You don't need any special uh, uh, credentials. It's part of the reason why we saw with early cell phones, people taking video of law enforcement doing their jobs, arresting people. Uh, The government tried to say that's not protected. Courts disagreed and said, no, 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 no. Individual citizens have the right to free press. The right to free press is really just the right to gather and disseminate information uh, to whatever communities uh, that you choose to. Uh, But with that right, right, comes the burdens of free press. We recently saw uh, in a case uh, where Cardi B was the plaintiff against a blogger or podcaster, right? And she won that case uh, against an individual who does not appear to have a whole lot of money, but they did have a lot of followers. Um, And there, that individual could not say, I'm not press, right? Um, Now they could say, I have freedom of press uh, to say what I want, But then there were other claims that Cardi B had defamation, uh, which countered that uh, and ended up in some pretty substantial damages. 
Could you just explain what defamation is? You know, I feel like all the children, and I shouldn't call them children, there are students, right? You know, they're all posting on the internet, they're taking pictures, you know, maybe they're, you know, taking pictures of each other and posting them. Uh, you know, where is that defamation line? When can get, they get in trouble since we're all pressed with our cell phones out there? So defamation is libel and slander, right? Uh, one deals with uh, printing information about individuals. The other deals with uh, uh, speaking, uh, much like we're doing now. It's this idea uh, that individuals have protection against falsehoods that are said about them. Um, now, one of uh, uh, the problems, however, is that there can be a lot of anonymous speech, right? You can't always trace the, uh, who the speaker is. Um, and so that has caused a lot of problems, uh, especially in the internet world. Um, but nevertheless, it is this idea that you have a right to your reputation. Um, and if someone speaks falsely about you, and that information is published uh, and publicly disseminated, then you possibly have a claim uh, to seek redress of the damages caused by the falsehood stated uh, about your good name. Now, in the mid-1950s uh, and uh, 60s, during the Civil Rights Movement, we have the New York Times versus Sullivan case that says when you're dealing with public officials, uh, you have to show actual malice. Interesting thing about that case, uh, it was a legislator in Alabama who brought a claim against the New York Times for an op-ed that they published surrounding the Civil Rights Movement. At that time, there were over $300 million in state law defamation judgments around the nation against civil rights leaders and newspapers who were publishing about the civil rights movement. Uh, and so as much as we quibble today about the actual ma malice standard, we have to understand its civil rights roots and the way in which the civil rights movement could have been sued out of existence had the court not imposed a higher standard. In subsequent cases after New York Times versus Sullivan, the court said public figures uh, also have to meet that high actual malice uh, standard. Now, who counts as a public figure? You know, is the Instagrammer with a million followers a public figure? Does she cross the line? Well, that's a very complicated question that never really got resolved, right? Uh, because there's a distinction between thrusting, right? And I should say part of the question is, is there a distinction between thrusting yourself in an issue or you being thrust in an issue? Uh, some states say that whenever you're charged of a crime, you become a public figure such that wow. there can be broad reporting uh, about you and your activities, even if you're later found innocent, right, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you would have a claim for defamation. And if you did, you'd still have to meet that high standard. In the world of the internet, it has become increasingly complicated to determine who's sort of thrusting themselves, who's being thrust into issues, right? And if you're just out communicating in the internet world, are you now subjected uh, to being designated uh, some type of public figure, uh, even if you're pretty much a private individual. I don't know if it's going to make a difference between having 50 followers and a million followers. Uh, it's a very dicey issue. 
which is why we see at least two members of the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Clarence Thomas, Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, sort of advocating maybe altering this actual malice standard and digging into this public figure issue. You should know that there are public figures, there are limited public figures, and then there are private individuals. Really unclear what the standard is. And I should say that this is about not just people, but companies too. Uh, companies have uh, uh, can bring defamation claims as well. Um, and so when you think about the broad reach of a company, very difficult to see uh, which companies would be public figures, limited public figures versus solely private businesses. And I imagine, I mean, I feel like it's kind of hard for someone in these days to be totally private. Um, I, I don't even know that, you, I mean, you'd basically have to go off the grid. It's kind of hard to be a totally private figure. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, especially depending on your, your employment, right? Um, you know, some people's employment causes them to sort of give interviews, do presentations, right? Do you lose your private figure status there? And if so, how far does that go when it comes to invading your privacy, protesting in front of your home, right? If you're a political figure, um, really complicated stuff. Wow. Yeah, I never even thought about it. I was like, wait, are all professors now public figures? <laughs> like, right? We all have public profiles. We all have to pub. We all literally publish. Um, yeah. 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 And I think at least as your campus goes, the answer may be yes. Wow. That's terrifying, actually. <laughs> I have to think about that. I can't be <laughs> defamed by my students. So I can't like sue for defamation for the teaching evaluations is what you're saying. Well, no, definitely, probably not that, uh, mainly because that's not published information, right? That's true. Usually the teaching evals are kept between you uh, and the professor. That is not to say that uh, the institutions should not be mindful of what we now know uh, are disparate impacts in terms of the way women are criticized, professors of color are criticized versus their white male counterparts. Now, we've talked a lot about social media and, you know, one question I've gotten from folks is, you know, why can Facebook put me in jail or why can Twitter kick me off? Doesn't that violate my First Amendment rights? How do you answer that question? Well, first of all, we haven't had a designation or a ruling by the Supreme Court that these are state actors. Um, and therefore, we will treat them as private actors. And as private actors, they do not have to worry about the First Amendment. Because again, the First Amendment, like all of our Bill of Rights, applies against government action, uh, state and federal, local government action, not against private individuals. Uh, also, when you join social media websites, uh, there's a little button that you usually have to click that says you agree to a bunch of stuff you have not read. Um, and within that is that you agree to abide by the rules of the platform and that the platform owners have the right to say what the rules are and determine whether or not you're guilty of violating those rules. And so what if the, the rules are racist, right? So, you know, there are folks who say, um, for example, when Twitter was kicking off the insurgents that they were discriminating against white people or when some of the Black Lives Matter posts were getting censored that Facebook is discriminating against Black people. How does how is that impacted, you know, by federal law, even though it's a private company? 
So again, the Equal Protection Clause only applies against the federal government. Now, you may have other laws in other spaces, uh, federal law most likely, uh, that uh, regulates uh, internet platforms, right? And there may be uh, provisions within those laws that deal with discrimination, much in the same way we see it for universities and colleges with Title VII, Title IX. Um, and, and so you probably want to turn to those federal statutes. Uh, but guess what? Uh, uh, we had some early cases on sort of the regulation of the Internet. Um, and from the perspective of the U.S. Supreme Court, at least at the time, uh, there was very little uh, desire to really regulate uh, the WWW, as I call it primarily because it was seen as new, we wanted to, to flourish, right? Uh, a very economically driven motivation for the lack of regulation of the internet. I think the more these social media sites uh, become popular, it could be that Congress decides to uh, impose, if there aren't already rules about equal protection, anti-discrimination, which I suspect there are, we may begin to see Congress uh, evaluate whether the existing rules are effective uh, such that there could be disparate impacts on communities and misinformation about certain communities that maybe Congress now has to step in because it affects federal interest. So, you know, lots of people get in trouble for, you know, the video, you know, the Karen videos or the, I'm going to call the manager videos that are out there. Um, you know, people get fired because they get, have a video posted on the internet. And some of those people say it is a violation of my first amendment rights to fire me for a tweet. Is that true? Uh, well, one, it again depends on who's your employer. Uh, if it's a private employer, you usually don't have to worry about the First Amendment, although there may be anti-discrimination law that could kick in uh, on your behalf. If you're a government employer, incredibly complicated. Uh, there is a doctrine in First Amendment law that does limit the speech of government employees. A lot of it depends on what is in the public's interest or what is a issue of public concern. Um, and the court really has left it very murky, right? Uh, what if you're exposing uh, uh, poor spending habits on behalf of your government employer and, you're, and you feel as if you've been fired for that? Well, isn't that something the public has a right to know? Not really clear how the court examines that um, and the cases on the subject don't really lay out a, a framework or a foundation. Uh, so it can be very difficult uh, if you work for a government employee, uh, employer uh, to speak out. If you're speaking out against your private employer, uh, you probably only have federal civil rights law, unless there's some other area of law dealing with whistleblower protection that comes into play. But a lot of that doesn't guarantee you getting your job back um, necessarily. Um, and so there, again, uh, could be pretty tricky. Right. So I think, you know, the takeaway that I always have for people, because, you know, being even though I don't teach this stuff, right, if you're a lawyer or a law professor, you know, people send you the DMs or send you the message and they're like, you know, I reported that my workplace wasn't safe and my boss saw it and I got fired and they violated my First Amendment rights when they did that. And I have to say, no, <laughs> um, maybe something else. Maybe they violated OSHA. 
maybe you've got whistleblower protection under like some other regime, but first amendment isn't your route and I can't get you your job back. That is the takeaway, right? Like, cause even if it is a first amendment violation, does that get them their job back? Not necessarily. Um, it, it's really unclear. It depends on the nature of the violation. Um, um, and it depends on sort of what, what it falls under, I should say. Um, a lot of times, uh, while you might not get your job back, it could increase your damages that you don't get your job back. So it could be uh, there that you're compensated in some other type of way, other than like a specific performance in terms of you having that particular job. Uh, so very, very, very complicated, extremely complicated as a whole uh, to prevail on discrimination claims in the workplace. So many cases are either dismissed at the outset or cannot make it past summary judgment. Now, a lot of that has to do with the people who are evaluating these claims. Maybe they are not always understanding of what it means to face discrimination, to face harassment. Um, and that is a larger conversation about the need for more diversity on our state and federal courts. Uh, but as of now, how the law stands, doesn't necessarily mean uh, even under federal discrimination law that you would necessarily get your job back. Although if you don't, that becomes part of your measure of damages. Now, I'd like to transition to some other hot topics. Um, and I'll start with critical race theory. You know, we've got these states that are banning the, or try, seeking to ban the teaching of critical race theory. Um, and some of the arguments are there's a First Amendment right to teach critical race theory and to teach any other sort of theory. Um, what's the First Amendment analysis like um, for the critical race theory discussion? Uh, so I think the first question that a court will ask, and, and the uh, U.S. Supreme Court has said this is the first question in any First Amendment case, uh, is it a content-based regulation, which means the regulation is based on its content, or is it content neutral, meaning the regulation applies regardless of its content? Uh, the issue with many of the critical race theory bans is that it's very clear that this is based on the content of the speech. Because of that, it will likely receive the highest level of scrutiny under the U.S. Constitution. While that does not mean it automatically fails, it puts the burden on the government. The law is presumed unconstitutional, and you have to show that the law is then necessary uh, to achieve a compelling government interest. Really unclear whether a ban on critical race theory is necessary to achieve a compelling government interest. A, because the interest uh, is very unclear with a lot of these statutes, especially the way in which uh, the theory is, is described, right? Um, but it's also really unclear whether it's necessary to ban it uh, in, uh, in order to achieve whatever your goal is. Uh, the biggest, uh, another big issue is uh, the First Amendment is very, very, very anti prior regulations, uh, i.e. limiting speech before it can even happen. Um, and usually there, uh, uh, when you have an absolute ban, like many of these critical race theory bans, very hard to see the court approving it. The only situation where the court has approved a ban is 
child pornography for obvious reasons. But even there, the court has said, well, if you're using live children, it's banned. In the virtual world, not necessarily so. Um, and so uh, uh, even there, we see some of that absolute ban uh, can give way if there are alternative methods. Uh, I uh, happen to live uh, in the first anti-crit state, Idaho. Um, and it was very clear from the debates there uh, that the goal of the law was to prevent conversations about race in the classroom under a theory uh, that no America does not have a race problem. Um, and if to the extent that there is a race problem, it is about making Caucasians feel bad about the history of the United States, as opposed to educating people about that history. And if they feel bad, they feel bad, right? Um, and so some of the rationales of many crit bills like that in Idaho, I think are gonna be very difficult to defend in court. So, you know, Florida has this don't say gay bill. Um, does that get the same treatment, you think, as the CRT bills in the court? Yeah, and I think a lot of those are, are uh, with both bills, you have that overlying issue of there's an identity issue here, right? Which raises equal protection concerns. Uh, in the context of critical race theory, uh, it should not surprise no one that that is a theory, uh, the founders of which are people of color and women of color. Um, really interesting the way in which we want to promote originalism, right, which is primarily white men as this very good thing, uh, but ban critical race theory, which seeks to look at how the, the race caste system that our framers designed still affects us today, right? So clearly there are equal protection issues as well as the First Amendment. With the don't say gay bill one, uh, what if you're using the term gay in, in its other definitions, right? Uh, so the vagueness issues, the overbreath issues are gonna be dominant there, but also you're attacking people's identity, right? If you're gay, then how is it that you can be said uh, banned from saying and claiming who you are as a matter of expression. Uh, it would be the same thing like saying, don't say Black. Well, if I'm Black, why can't I say I'm Black? Why can't I declare who I am? Really interesting the way in which this traces back to Dred Scott and to Plessy, right? In these very contentious identity-based issues, race, and sexual orientation. You know, I, you know, I'd be curious, I didn't write this down. So if you don't have an answer, that is fine. But um, I'd be curious, you know, if you see that it's the same thread from Plessy and Dred Scott, or if you see an evolution of our thinking from Plessy and Dred Scott, from, you know, from, from that to the don't say gay bills and the CRT bills. Are, are we, is it more of the same? Is it the same thing again? Or are we getting a little better with each iteration? You know, I definitely think each generation does get better, right? Uh, of, of course, uh, I think that's why it's so startling uh, when we see these vestiges uh, uh, that much of mainstream America still has, right? I think sometimes in our desire to see things get better, we often don't see how things haven't changed at all. I think that there is a clear thread between anti-crit bills anti-say gay bills and our racial past. 
Uh, I think about all of the laws post-Civil War. Uh, one thing to understand about the Plessy versus Ferguson case is that it approved separate but equal policy. Uh, as part of those policies, we had laws all over the country where some people couldn't testify against other people in court. It was based on race. Uh, African-Americans could not give testimony against Caucasians in court. We had a number of U.S. Supreme Court cases uh, where Asians said, well, I'm not African-American, so I can give this testimony. And the court said, well, we don't care if you're not African-American. This law still applies against you. Um, and so the ways in which uh, speech, speech has been suppressed over the years, we have to uh, understand that much of this has been those who don't have power or the same amount of power as the mainstream. Uh, if you look at the 1919 era of cases that introduced the concept of incitement, still an exception under the First Amendment, an area of less protected speech, inciting unlawful activity. Well, guess what was unlawful at that time? Civil rights advocacy. Um, and so the ways in which the First Amendment had been used as a tool against civil rights activists to put them in jail for protesting all sort of comes um, from that line of cases. Now, those cases are not about civil rights activists. They're about war activism. But at the same time was that civil rights activist. Uh, so the subject of our cases, what the court chooses to hear to announce these broad principles that apply to everyone is something we need to pay attention to, right? What are we not talking about, uh, but who are also affected by these laws. Uh, and so the First Amendment has been both a sword when it comes to equality, but also a shield when it comes to equality. And understanding uh, that topsy-turvy nature, its ability to give us freedom, but its ability to allow others to take other people's freedom is something we have to understand about our constitutional history when it comes to the First Amendment. Now, these incite incitement cases, is this what states are using when they prosecute Black Lives Matter protesters? Yes. Yes. And of course, we still see this today, right? Uh, this idea that you've incited violence. Your protests have got has, has gotten too uh, 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 dangerous, and therefore we have to crack it down. Uh, there's a, another line of cases about fighting words. Uh, where we see uh, a lot of disparate impacts uh, in terms of this idea of someone maybe saying something more than unpolite to law enforcement and law enforcement arresting them. Well, when you think about a world of law enforcement discretion, how does that exactly work? Because we certainly see videos where people are going off on law enforcement. Doesn't seem to result in an arrest. We see other examples uh, where people seem non-compliant and it can lead to a very violent encounter. Very odd in the ways in which we don't see these as all the time First Amendment issues, but the First Amendment are embedded, especially these encounters with law enforcement. Wow. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm trying to process that, that, you know, law enforcement is clearly a government actor, but we're not seeing it as First Amendment when it's law enforcement, which feels very counterintuitive. And I don't even know how to reconcile that. Um, just we've yeah. seen it throughout our history, right? Martin Luther King was jailed multiple times. 
for his speech and the reaction of the crowd, right? They accused him of inciting the crowd. Uh, you have to understand that at the time, uh, then we had laws that said you couldn't speak out against Jim Crow. So there's the illegal activity there. Just speaking uh, was a crime. Um, so really, uh, in other contexts, uh, uh, open expressions of homosexuality was a crime that you could be arrested for. Uh, the uh, activity itself of having sex with an individual of the same gender was a crime until Texas versus Lawrence very recently. There's nothing more expressive than engaging in sexual contact, right? Nothing more intimate in terms of your right of free association. And yet, uh, in our history, we see the criminalization of very human activities. Wow. Now, for our last discussion, I'd like to talk about college campuses. We have all of this tension on college campuses. You know, there are stories about cancel culture. You know, some of our colleagues who feel like they're being attacked because they've been dropping the N-word in class for 50 years and now students say it's not okay. Um, then we have, or, you know, colleagues who refuse to call students the proper pronouns. Um, you also have students who are claiming they're not allowed, you know, to express their conservative opinions in classrooms and their First Amendment speech is being violated. You know, how does the First Amendment impact our intellectual freedom, you know, in classrooms and either pr private? Well, I guess that's the first question. And then the next question is, does it matter if I'm at a private institution or a public institution when it comes to academic speech? Well, a lot of uh, we, what we have to understand about the education space is that we've got federal civil rights right? Why do we have that? Well, because we had segregated education, segregated in terms of being with each other, but also segregated in terms of funding. Um, and in the years, uh, as part of our Civil Rights Act, there was this desire to codify Brown versus Board of Education, especially given that many colleges and universities and public school districts resisted Brown, absolutely refused to desegregate. We're still dealing with the vestiges of that today in 2020. Um, and so if you look at many colleges and their brochures, right, what do they do? They don't really tell you, right, that this is going to be a space where people will use the N-word. Right. They don't really tell you that this is a space where you're going to have to deal with racism. What they tell you is that this is a space that is safe for everyone. All are welcome. Right. And that you should come to this great environment that's going to be welcoming for you. Now, I want to separate the student speech from the professor speech, starting with the student speech. Um, it is really unclear to me what the parameters are in terms of your speech in class, uh, given that it can have a very negative effect for your classmates. Um, now, that's not to say that a, a professor can give you a bad grade because of your speech, unless of course that speech uh, doesn't meet, uh, unless of course your speech is about how two and two is five versus two and two being four, right? And that, that may be part of some of the problem here is that some of the speech uh, that professors are looking at uh, goes against uh, what the professor is teaching. Now, I want to focus more on the 
And I should say, uh, we have to understand two colleges and universities have all types of honor codes uh, that students have to sign, which is kind of a contract, right, between you and that community. Um, and so I think for students, there has to be some mindfulness that if your speech is having a negative effect in the environment uh, or is a violation of the honor code, then you may be able to be punished for that speech because of that agreement that you made. Now, I think that there's also a difference between undergraduate and professional schools, right? Uh, if you think about law, the law school space, uh, well, if you are planning to become a lawyer, i.e. take that bar exam and take that oath, you have to agree to uphold the constitution uh, and to zealously advocate your client. Uh, there would be questions about your ability to zealously advocate for everyone if you are espousing racist views in the classroom, right? Um, and, and it may be that later in your uh, lawyer career, you're going to have issues. Maybe your clients are going to sue you because uh, you use the N-word and you have a Black client. Um, maybe somebody's not going to want you to be their attorney. Maybe that business will not want you to represent their interests if you're engaging in that particular type of behavior. The professor's speech, I think, has been way, made way more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, yes, there's academic freedom. Uh, and does that mean you can say whatever you want in the classroom? Of course not. Uh, but does it mean that you have to be fired? Not necessarily so either. Uh, for me, the better option is to give those students another option, right? Why do you have to take the class from the N-word professor? Maybe you should have another professor teaching that course such that this becomes more of a, a competitiveness issue, right? If you're teaching the class in a way that students uh, don't relate to you, they feel discriminated against, uh, you can still teach that class, but maybe those students should have a different option. Now, this for many colleges creates a budget issue, right? Um, and I get that, but I think that that may be the way to change a professor's behavior. If you find out that very few students want to take your class, uh, maybe you're going to not drop that N-word uh, just as a matter, you know, not to you know, reveal all the secrets of being professors, but we want our students to love us, right? We want to be adored. And one way we see that is who signs up for our class? What are those numbers looking like? Um, and so I think many professors would change their behavior if there was a co competitive class that students could take. Yeah, and I've noticed that has been the philosophy of some schools, right? You know, if someone is saying things that are inappropriate or is refusing to use the right pronouns, you know, they're not teaching first-year law students anymore. Um, or which, you know, is how a lot of us, one, it's how you get to know so many students. It's how you get the best RAs, and, yep. right? So that's, some people view that as a blessing. Others view that as a punishment. Um, or they're not allowed to teach the general con law section anymore. They're only teaching specialty classes. And therefore, you know, that weighs into it. You know, we didn't get to cancel culture, but, you know, to me, what we just explained is, is cancel culture, right? If people aren't choosing you because of what you are saying, um, that's not really cancellation. That's just kind of people exercising their speech by not picking you. Yeah. Well, there's free speech, but there's no such thing as consequence free 
free speech. Um, And I think that's where the line is as well, right? Uh, People get to react to your speech, right? Whether by speaking or by their behavior. And I think that's some of the problem that we have. Some individuals seem to want to be able to say whatever they want. Uh, without any consequences. And then somehow when people speak against them, that's the First Amendment violation, right? And that's not really how the First Amendment works. Well, and I would say just kind of as my closing thought, um, you know, we kind of opened with discussing Plessy and Dred Scott. And to me, what that is about is who has the right to speak against me. It's not about the fact that someone is speaking. It's about the fact that someone who you think shouldn't have the right to is speaking against you. And I think it's this with professors, it's the idea that, you know, we used to have not so egalitarian classrooms, right? Where, you know, the professor was the God. And now it's kind of like the students drive it. We take a more market approach when it comes to posting on social media and things like that, you know, any and everybody can see it. And so just because you're the big bad corporation or the big bad special person, doesn't mean that all the little people who you think don't have the right to speak aren't speaking against you. So I appreciate you bringing it full circle that way. Thank you so much, Shakira. I always say, I did not like common law law school. Um, I do business law and believe in private ordering, but because of Shakira, I get enthusiastic and excited about the constitution. And so I wish she could be my con law professor. I think everyone feels that way too. So I greatly appreciate you being here and joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Yes. And we will have another episode to cover all things we didn't cover called That Is the First Amendment because we didn't finish everything. All right. So thank you, everyone, for listening today. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch us anywhere podcasts are broadcast. Also on the Voice America website. And we have a YouTube channel if you'd like to watch the video. You can find me on social media at Carlis C. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.